Welcome back, Hemingway Brainiacs, to the Heming Brainiacathon podcast of legendaryness. We're talking about Of Human Bondage, Chapter 46. Fanny Price is a great character. Awful person, though. Swim said the mum fishy said she may be awful, but to me, she shows all the signs of major clinical depression. Mm, really? Yeah, well, her house is very untidy and she's quite down on herself. Um, so maybe she's, she is depressed. That still does not excuse someone from being awful. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm not, I'm not of the camp that if you have a mental disorder, you are then excused from anything awful that you do. I think you still have to own whatever it is. You know what I mean? Um, I know that doesn't stand up in the court of law. You can plead insanity and you can, you know, get off on a lot of things, but, um, Anyway, just from personal experience, you've got to sometimes call an awful person an awful person. Although, she's not completely unkind, is she? She's just like... She's, she makes you roll your eyes. You can, you can understand you'd want to maybe distance yourself from her if she was in your circle because like it'd be a bit of effort to be friends with someone like that. A mental health disorder, says Swims to the Mama Fishy, characterised by persistently depressed mood, loss of interest in activities... Causing significant impairment in daily life. Well, she is very interested in her art. Um, if she was depressed, she would maybe turn away from it and say, I'm done with this crap. Um, I don't really see depression. I see something, but I don't know if it's depression. The, the very messy house um, is one thing that kind of indicates it, but she's very enthusiastic, and depressed people don't tend to be so enthusiastic. Um, messy house could also just be a... Well, there could be many reasons someone's house would be messy. It just might be their temperament. Uh, possible causes include a combination of biological, physiological, or social sources of distress. Increasingly, research suggests these factors may cha cause changes in brain function, including altered activity of certain neural circuits in the brain. Philip is showing himself to be an awfully... He, he, see what it is there? Decent young man in light of her mental health issues yeah he is quite kind to stick around through them i would agree with that i've been that guy and people have been that guy for me when i've been down in the dumps but i think it's important to know it's not you're not a bad person if you're not up for that because trying to bring someone out of depression uh, I mean, there are professionals who do that much better than you could do it you can be a sympathetic ear right and you can be kind you know offer assistance give them a gift give them a hug that kind of thing but you don't have to because someone dealing with a serious illness like that it's it's a big burden to put on someone else your illness and they need to be aware of that i think uh, and i only say this in the cases where there's sometimes people who are clearly depressed and refuse to acknowledge it or get help about it and yet they're so happy to put it on other people day in day out and kind of burden them with it when they won't even take the burden of their own health themselves and I think that's really unfair and anyway I'm ranting I'm clearly uh, talking about personal experiences I've had by this point you know um, but the reason I say what I say here is a little my little kind of two cents 
about you know it's you're not responsible for another person's mental health if even if you love that person if they need help you don't have to be the person to give them that help um is because the mental illness that i most recently had a run-in with that's part of the illness of that guilting people into taking responsibility for you you know like that's what the person will do and it's very predatory and it's all part of this kind of cycle i'm talking about borderline personality disorder where they kind of try to trap you in the i need your help and if you don't give it to me you mustn't love me kind of trap um and it's 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 really at the core of it it's quite evil the things that people with that disorder will do and the people you know not everyone with that disorder is awful but the person that i had a run in with was an awful person okay i'll just say that an awful person and you you eventually can't keep giving them the excuse of oh they're not mentally well they can't help it at a certain point you've got to go look at the list of terrible things this person has done it's not up to me to try to fix them or get them help if they're not going to try themselves or at all you know at all uh anyway big rant sorry let's get back on on uh, on task here I am Norwegian said this man what an awkward situation for Philip I think I'd do the same thing the thing her entire existence resolves, revolves around being good at she absolutely is devoid of talent in you don't want to be the person who argues or tries to convince her of that um, yeah look I don't think she is you know clinically depressed or anything I think she's just a bit hopeless you know I think she's very determined and she refuses to acknowledge that maybe she doesn't have what it takes. She's probably quite young. I'm not sure how old she is, but it seems like, you know, she's incensed that she will be a great artist. But, you know, you need to have talent at some level. And maybe if she's persistent, she'll develop a talent and get good at it. But the thing that makes me think maybe not is that she doesn't really seem very... uh, she doesn't seem to take on much criticism like he said about oh this one the perspective's no good or whatever he said the 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 math what do you say the not math there was some particular thing he said and she said that that's my best one and just kind of dismissed what he said puts him in a very awkward spot and uh, she uh brushed over a, a learning opportunity what exactly is wrong with it how would you have done it what do you think i should have done better how did you do that? Show me that. You know, that kind of thing. Entrepa says... Oh, hang on. Oh, wait. There's two comments from Entrepa. That's why I'm confused. Entrepa says this. A humorous little tidbit from 1908 on how to pronounce the author's name. Ooh, I love a humorous tidbit. Um, here we go. Morgan. This is from New York Times, 1908. They were discussing the proper pronunciation of Somerset Morgan. I still can't say it. The new English dramatist who suddenly burst on London four months ago with four plays and whose Jack Straw is now being given on Broadway. The name is pronounced Morm, declared one who had been in London. No, it's surely Marwam. Morwam, opined and someone else. Marm is better, declared another. No, it's Muggum, said one who inclined to the something. And they grow quite heated about it. Of course it's Muggum, 
rats, it's mayum. No, it's moum. Mogum, by all means. But finally, one who had done nothing so far, but shows signs of going impatient, and Enui suddenly brought his fist down on the table. Mum's the word, he shouted. That ended the discussion. Mum. You reckon it's pronounced mum? No, it's not pronounced mum. Uh, thank you for that humorous tidbit. It's a stupid name that no one can say properly. Let's just leave it at that. It's a dumb name, and I refuse to say it one more, ever again. That's it. I've said it for the last time. I'm just going to say mum from now on. Entropic <laughs> uh, also says, I agree about her being awful, Miss Penny. Penny? Is that her name? Penny? No, Fanny. Fanny Price. <laughs> um... I always admire an author who can create solid, believable characters, especially those who evoke emotion in the reader. Well, yeah, that's the that's the goal, isn't it? I dislike Fanny, but at the same time I pity her and somewhat envy her devotion in spite of everything. Is it just me, or does anyone else want to see Fanny's work to see just how bad they are? I attribute this admittedly morbid curiosity to the skill of the author. I very much want... I actually was hoping she was a real person and that we could see some of her terrible art. Um, Swim said the mum of fishy said there is a museum of bad art near Boston okay I gotta have a look at this and an official museum of bad art which is shortened to Obama uh, in Seattle okay let's have a look at this Boston one wait was it Boston? Boston uh, collections okay we got some poor uh, it just looks like art to me, to be honest. Oh, some of it's pretty bad. Yeah, there's like a cat with a mountain and a river behind it and mountainous uh, clouds and a dog in the sky as a cloud. That's that's lame. Um, there's some kind of abstract stuff. See, some of this... I'm looking at one now under the title Unseen Forces. Uh, and it just looks kind of like Picasso-esque, cartoon-esque... Um, it's not good by any stretch, but if you told me that that was good or respected in the art world, I would just go, oh, okay. I don't love it, but yeah. If you told me that was Picasso's uh, lost piece, I'd just go, oh, oh cool. Um, art is dumb. It just is. It's just, a dumb, it's just a dumb thing. It's like Morgan. You know, everyone thinks they know how to say it, but no one really knows. Um, all right. That's the worst analogy ever. Um, <clears throat> all right, let's keep reading, hey? Before we do that, quick advertisement for you. You're going to love this. Today's episode is brought to you by... What do I want to bring it to you by? How about my Bogan War and Peace book? If you want to read War and Peace, but you don't want to get bogged down with all that uh, old-fashioned language... You can read my Aussie translation. It's the it's the book. It's real war and peace. But the narrator just happens to be an Aussie now. Everything else is historically accurate. Um, so if you read it, you can still say, I've read war and peace. Everything's there. Just a little bit funnier because of the Aussie colloquialisms. Uh, you'll love it. Hopefully. You might hate it, but hey, give it a look at. War and peace... And a Lewis edition. Uh, book one is available now at uh, upandupmedia.com.au or I think it's on Amazon as well. Um, that is, that's it. Okay, that's my advertising. Not a very good one, but hey, let's keep moving. Chapter XLV11. 
XLVII, I mean, XLVII, which stands for 47. In March, there was all the excitement of sending into the salon. Clutton characteristically had nothing ready, and he was very scornful of the two heads that Lawson sent. They were obviously the work of a student, straightforward portraits of models, but they had a certain force. Clutton, aiming at perfection, had no patience with efforts which betrayed hesitancy. With a shrug of his shoulders, told Lawson it was an impertinence to exhibit stuff which should never have been allowed out of his student studio. He was not less contemptuous when the two heads were accepted. Flanagan tried his luck too, but his pictures were refused. Mrs. Otter sent a blameless portrait de Ma Marie, accomplished with a second rate. Uh, sorry, accomplished and second rate, and was hung in a very good place. Oh my God, this chapter goes for about a month. All right, strap in, people. Hayward, whom Philip had not seen since he left Heidelberg, arrived in Paris to spend a few days in time to come to the party which Lawson and Philip were giving in their studio to celebrate the hanging of Lawson's pictures. Okay. I can see why this is a long chapter. The, the editor has, had ta has taken a day off. Let me read that again. Hayward, whom Philip had not seen since he left Heidelberg, arrived in Paris to spend a few days in time to come to the party which Lawson and Philip were giving in their studio to celebrate the hanging of Lawson's pictures. I, you, there's a million ways you can say that with less clunky language. Editor's taken a day off. We've got a long chapter. Here we go. Philip had been eager to see Hayward again, but when at last they met, he experienced some disappointment. Hayward had altered a little in appearance. His fine hair was thinner, and with the rapid wilting of the very fair, he was becoming wizened and colourless. His blue eyes were paler than they had been, and there was a muzziness about his features. On the other hand, in mind, he did not seem to have changed at all, and the culture which had impressed Philip at 18 aroused somewhat the contempt of Philip at 21. He had altered a good deal himself, and regarding with scorn all his old opinions of art, life, and letters, had no patience with anyone who still held them. Uh, good old Hayward's back, that's pretty cool. Sorry, I lost my place thinking about that. Uh, he was scarcely conscious of the fact that he wanted to show off before Hayward, and when he took him round the galleries, he poured out to him all the revolutionary opinions which himself had so recently adopted. He took him to Manet's Olympia and said dramatically, Can you imagine if you were the kind of person who thought having a car slash motorbike that loud was in some way good? I can still hear it. Sorry. <clears throat> I would give all of the old masters except Velasquez, Rembrandt and Vermeer for that one picture. Who was Vermeer? asked Hayward. Oh, my dear fellow, don't you know Vermeer? You are not civilised. You mustn't live a moment longer without making his acquaintance. He's the one old master who painted like a modern. He dragged Hayward out of the Luxembourg and hurried off to the Louvre. But aren't there any more pictures here? asked Hayward with the tourist passion for thoroughness. Nothing of the least consequence. You can come and look at them by yourself with your Bedeka. When he arrived at the Louvre, Philip led his friend down the long gallery. I should like to see the Geoconda, said Hayward. Oh, my dear fellow, it's only literature, answered Philip. At last, in a small room, Philip stopped before the lace maker of Vermeer van Delft. There, 
There, that's the best picture in the Louvre. It's exactly like a Manet. With an expressive, eloquent thumb, Philip expatiated on the charming work. He used the jargon of the studios with overpowering effect. I don't know that I see anything so wonderful as all that in it, said Hayward. Of course, it's a painter's picture, said Philip. I can quite believe the layman would see nothing much in it. The what? said Hayward. The layman. Like most people who cultivate an interest in the arts, Hayward was extremely anxious to be right. He was dogmatic with those who did not venture to assert themselves, but with the self-assertive, he was very modest. He was impressed by Philip's assurance and accepted meekly Philip's implied suggestion that the painter's arrogant claim to be the sole possible judge of painting has anything but its impertinence to recommend it. A day or two later, Philip and Lawson gave their party. Cronshaw, making an exception in their favour, agreed to eat their food, and Miss Chalice offered to come and cook for them. She took no interest in her own sex and declined the suggestion that other girls should be asked for her sake. Clutton, Flanagan, Potter and two others made up the party. Furniture was scarce, so the model stand was used as a table, and the guests were to sit in a portmanteau if they liked and if they didn't on the floor. The feast consisted of a pot of few, which Miss Chalice had made, of a leg of mutton roasted round the corner and brought round hot and savoury. Miss Chalice had cooked the potatoes, and the studio was redolent of the carrots she had fried. Fried carrots were her specialty. And this was to be followed by poires, flambees, pears with burning brandy, which Cronshaw had volunteered to make. The meal was to finish with an enormous fromage de brie, which stood near the window and added fragrant odours to all the others which follow, filled the studio. Cronshaw sat in the place of honour on the Gladstone bag, with his legs curled under him like a Turkish bashaw, beaming good-naturedly on the young people who surrounded him from force of habit, though the small... St- I'm going to close the door. I don't know what's going on out the front of my house. It seems like grease lightning, maybe, but with Aussie bogans instead of, like, Konecki. <laughs> um, the worst version of Konecki, if you can imagine. Um, Cronshaw sat... I read that bit. From force of habit, though, the small studio with the stove lit was very hot. He kept on his great coat with the collar turned up and his bowler hat. He looked with satisfaction on the four large fiasci of Chianti, which stood in front of him in a row, two on each side of a bottle of whiskey. He said it reminded him of a slim, fair Circassian guarded by four corpulent eunuchs. Haywood, in order to put the rest of them at their ease, had clothed himself in a tweed suit and a Trinity Hall tie. He looked grotesquely British. The others were elaborately polite to him, and during the soup they talked of the weather and the political situation. There was a pause while they waited for the leg of mutton, and Miss Chalice lit a cigarette. Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let down your hair, she said suddenly. With an elegant gesture, she untied a ribbon as she, that, so that her trestles, tresses fell over her shoulders. She shook her head. I always feel more comfortable with my hair down. With her large brown eyes, thin ascetic face, her pale skin, broad forehead, she might have stepped out of a picture by Byrne Jones. She had long, beautiful hands, with fingers deeply stained by nicotine. She wore sweeping draperies, mauve and green. There was about her the romantic air of the high street, Kensington. She was wantonly ascetic, but she was an excellent creature, kind, good-natured, and her affections were but skin deep. Who are we talking about here? 
Miss Chalice. Uh, there was a knock at the door, and they all gave a shout of exultation. Miss Chalice rose and opened. She took the leg of mutton and held it high above her, as though it were the head of John the Baptist on a platter, and the cigarette still in her mouth advanced with solemn, hieratic steps. Hail, daughter of Herodias, she cried, cried Cronshaw. The mutton was eaten with gusto, and it was did one good to see what a hearty appetite the pale-faced lady had. Clutton and Potter sat on each side of her, and everyone knew that neither had found her unduly coy. She grew tired of most people in six weeks, but she knew exactly how to treat afterwards the gentlemen who had laid their young hearts at her feet. She bore them no ill will, though having loved them she had ceased to do so, and treated them with friendliness but without familiarity. Now and then she looked at Lawson with melancholy eyes. The Poirers, Flambies, were a great success, partly because of the brandy, partly because Miss Chalice insisted that they should be eaten with the cheese. I don't know whether it's perfectly delicious or whether I'm just going to vomit, she said after she had thoroughly tried the mixture. Coffee and cognac followed with sufficient speed to prevent any untoward consequence, and they settled down to smoke in comfort. Ruth Chalice, who could do nothing that was not deliberately artistic, arranged herself in a graceful attitude by Cronshaw and just rested her exquisite head on his shoulder. She looked into the dark abyss of time with brooding eyes, and now and then, with a long meditative glance at Lawson, she sighed deeply. Then came the summer, the restlessness seized these young people, the blue skies lured them to the sea, and the pleasant breeze sighing through the leaves of the plain trees of the boulevard drew them towards the country. Everyone made plans for leaving Paris. They discussed what was the most suitable size for the canvases they meant to take. They laid in stores of panels for sketching. They argued about the merits of various places in Brittany. Flanagan and Potter went to Corsenu, Mrs. Otter and her mother, with a natural instinct for the obvious, went to Pont-Aven. Philip and Lawson made up their minds to go to the forest of Flame Pont Bleu, and Miss Chalice knew of a very good hotel at Moray, where there were lots of stuff to paint. It was near Paris, and neither Philip nor Lawson was indifferent to the railway fare. Ruth Chalice would be there, and Lawson had an idea of a, for a portrait of her in the open air. Just then the salon was full of portraits of people in gardens in sunlight with blinking eyes and green reflections of sunlit leaves on their faces. They asked Clutton to go with them, but he preferred spending the summer by himself. He had just discovered Cezanne and was eager to go to Provence. He wondered he wanted heavy skies from which the hot blue seemed to drip like beads of sweat, and broad white dusty roads and pale roofs out of which the sun had burnt the colour, and olive trees grey with heat. The day before they were to start, after the morning class, Philip, putting his things together, spoke to Fanny Price. I'm off tomorrow, he said cheerfully. Off where? she said quickly. You're not going away? Her face fell. I'm going away for the summer, aren't you? No, I'm staying in Paris. I thought you were going to stay too. I was looking forward. She stopped and shrugged her shoulders. But won't it be frightfully hot here? It's awfully bad for you. Much you care if it's bad for me. Where are you going? Moray. Chalice is going there. You're not going with her. Lawson and I are going, and she's going there too. I don't know that we're actually going together. She gave a low guttural sound, and her large face grew dark and red. How filthy. I thought you were a decent fellow. You were about the only one here. She's been with Clutton and Potter and Flanagan, even with old Foynette. That's why he takes so much trouble about her. And now, two of you, you and Lawson, makes me sick. Oh, what nonsense. She's a very decent sort. Only treats her just as if she were a man. 
One, sorry, one treats her just as if she were a man. Oh, don't speak to me. Don't speak to me. But what can it matter to you? asked Philip. It's really no business of yours where I spend my summer. I was looking forward to it so much, she gasped, speaking, it seemed almost to herself. I didn't think you had the money to go away, and there wouldn't have been anyone else here, and we could have worked together, and we'd have gone to see things. Then her thoughts flung back to Ruth Chalice. The filthy beast, she cried. She isn't fit to speak to. Philip looked at her with a sinking heart. He was not a man to think girls were in love with him. He was too conscious of his deformity, and he felt awkward and clumsy with women. But he did not know what else this outburst could mean. Fanny Price, in the dirty brown dress with her hair falling over her face, sloppy, untidy, stood before him, and tears of anger rolled down her cheeks. She was repellent. Philip glanced at the door, instinctively hoping that someone would come in and put an end to the scene. "'I'm awfully sorry,' he said. "'You're just the same as all of them. You take all you can get, and you don't even say thank you. I've taught you everything you know. Now, no one else would take any trouble with you. Has Foynet even bothered about you? And I can tell you this. You can work here for a thousand years, and you'll never do any good. You haven't got any talent. You haven't got any originality. And it's not only me. They all say it. You will never be a painter as long as you live.' "'Well, that's no business of yours either, is it?' said Philip, flushing. "'Oh, you think it's only my temper. Ask Clutton. Ask Lawson. Ask Chellis. Never, never, never. You haven't got it in you.' Philip shrugged his shoulders and walked out. She shouted after him, "'Never, never, never!' Moray was, in those days, an old-fashioned town of one street at the edge of the forest of Fontainebleau, and the Ecu d'Or was a hotel which still had about it the decrepit air of an ancient regime.' It faced the winding river. The Loing and Miss Chalice had a room with a little terrace overlooking it, with a charming view of the old bridge and its fortified gateway. They sat here in the evenings after dinner, drinking coffee, smoking and discussing art. There ran into the river, a little way off, a narrow canal bordered by poplars, and along the banks of this, after their day's work, they often wandered. They spent all day painting. Like most of their generation, they were obsessed by the fear of the picturesque, and they turned their backs on the obvious beauty of the town to seek subjects which were devoid of prettiness they despised. Cicely and Monet had painted the canal with its poplars, and they felt a desire to try their hands at what was so typical of France, but they were frightened of its formal beauty, and set themselves deliberately to avoid it. Miss Chalice, who had a clever dexterity which impressed Lawson, notwithstanding his contempt for feminine art, started a picture in which she tried to circumvent the commonplace by leaving out the tops of the trees, and Lawson had the brilliant idea of putting in his foreground a large blue advertisement of chocolate menier in order to emphasise his abhorrence of the chocolate box. Philip began now to paint in oils. He experienced a thrill of delight when first he used the grateful medium. He went out with Lawson in the morning with his little box and sat by him painting a panel. It gave him so much satisfaction that he did not realise he was doing no more than copy. He was so much under his friend's influence that he only saw with his eyes. Lawson painted very low in tone, and they both saw the emerald of the grass like dark velvet, while the brilliance of the sky turned in their hands to a brooding ultramarine. 
Through July, they had one fine day after another. It was very hot, and the heat searing Philip's heart filled him with languor. He could not work. His mind was eager with a thousand thoughts. Often he spent the mornings by the side of the canal in the shade of the poplars reading a few lines and then dreaming for half an hour. Sometimes he hired a rickety bicycle and rode along the dusty road that led to the forest and then lay down in a clearing. His head was full of romantic fancies. The ladies of Watteau, gay and insequent, seemed to wander with their cavaliers among the great trees, whispering to one another careless, charming things, and yet somehow oppressed by a nameless fear. They were alone in the hotel, but for a fat Frenchwoman of middle age, a Rabelaisian figure with a broad, obscene laugh. She spent the day by the river patiently fishing for fish she never caught, and Philip sometimes went down and talked to her. He found out that she had belonged to a profession whose most notorious member for our generation was Mrs. Warren, and having made a competence, she now lived the quiet life of the bourgeoisie. She told Philip lewd stories. You must go to Seville, she said. She spoke a little broken English. The most beautiful women in the world. She leered and nodded her head. Her triple chin, her large belly shook with inward laughter. It grew so hot that it was almost impossible to sleep at night. The heat seemed to linger under the trees as though it were a material thing. They did not wish to leave the starlight night, starlit night, and the three of them would sit on the terrace of Ruth Chalice's room, silent, hour after hour, too tired to talk any more, but in voluptuous enjoyment of the stillness, they listened to the murmur of the river. The church clock struck one and two, and sometimes three before they could drag themselves to bed. Suddenly, Philip became aware that Ruth Chalice and Lawson were lovers. He divined in it it. He divined it in the way the girl looked at the young painter, and in his air of possession, and as Philip sat with them he felt a kind of effluence surrounding them, as though the air were heavy with something strange. The revelation was a shock. He had looked up upon Miss Chalice as a very good fellow, and he liked to talk to her, but it had never seemed to him possible to enter into a closer relationship. One Sunday they had all gone with the tea-basket into the forest, and when they came to a glade which was suitably sylvan, Miss Chalice, because it was idyllic, insisted on taking off her shoes and stockings. It would have been very charming, only her feet were rather large, and she had on both a large corn on the third toe. Philip felt... <laughs> Phil, come on. Philip felt it made her proceeding a little ridiculous. But now he looked upon her quite differently. There was something softly feminine in her large eyes and her olive skin. He felt himself a fool not to have seen that she was attractive. He thought he detected in her a touch of contempt for him, because he had not had the sense to see that she was there. In his way, and in Lawson, a suspicion of his superiority, she was envious of Lawson, and he was jealous, not of the individual concerned, but of his love. He wished that he was standing in his shoes and feeling with his heart. He was troubled, and the fear seized him that love would pass him by. He wanted a passion to seize him. He wanted to be swept off his feet and borne powerless in a mighty rush. He cared not whither. Miss Chalice and Lawson seemed to him now somehow different, and the constant companionship with them made him restless. He was dissatisfied with himself. Life was not giving him what he wanted, and he had an uneasy feeling that he was losing his time. 
The stout Frenchwoman soon guessed what the relations were between the couple and talked of the matter to Philip with the utmost frankness. And you, she said, with a tolerant smile of one who had fattened on the lust of her fellows, have you got a petite amie? No, said Philip, blushing. And why not? C'est de votre âge. He shrugged his shoulders. He had a volume of Verlaine in his hands and he wandered off. He tried to read, but the, his passion was too strong. He thought of the stray amours to which he had been introduced by Flanagan, the sly visits to houses in a cul-de-sac with the drawing-room in Utrecht velvet and the mercenary graces of painted women. He shuddered. He threw himself on the grass, stretching his limbs like an animal, a young animal freshly awaked from sleep, and the rippling water, the poplars gently tremulous in the faint breeze, the blue sky were almost more than he could bear. He was in love with love. In his fancy he felt the kiss of warm lips on his and around his neck the touch of soft hands. He imagined himself in the arms of Ruth Chalice. He thought of her dark eyes and the wonderful texture of her skin. He was mad to have let such a wonderful adventure slip through his fingers. And if Lawson had done it, why should not he? But this was only when he did not see her. When he lay awake at night, or dreamed idly by the side of the canal, when he saw her, he felt suddenly quite different. He had no desire to take her in his arms, and he could not imagine himself kissing her. It was very curious. Away from her, he thought of her beautiful, remem he thought her beautiful, remembering only her magnificent eyes and the creamy pallor of her face. But when he was with her, he saw only that she was flat-chested and that her teeth were slightly decayed. He could not forget the corns on her toes. He could not understand himself. He... Would he always love only in absence, and be prevented from enjoying anything when he had the chance by the deformity of vision which seemed to ex exaggerate the revolting? He was not sorry when, he when a change in the weather announcing the definite end of the long summer drove them all back to Paris. Alrighty, there we go. There's another chapter for ya. Bit of a longie. Have your say over at the Hemingway list. I actually didn't mind this chapter in the end. I was a bit frustrated at the start, but I really liked it. I, I really liked the, the scene with Fanny Price telling him off for going away with Chalice. That was a good scene. All right. <clears throat> um, head over to the subreddit. Thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.